Romans chapter 3. We are returning to this great book after a planned and unplanned break. Uh, the Truth and Light Conference was, was planned, but the canceled flight last week was, was not. And as I was sitting in the airport desiring to be here with you, I was, I was actually reminded of a message I heard by, by a prominent speaker um, and the topic of the message was God's sovereignty in human responsibility. And he used the example of a, of a travel delay that kept him from speaking uh, at an engagement in Africa where, where he was slotted to speak at a, at a big conference and there's a lot of people coming. They were probably coming, a number of them because of him and the programs were printed and all of that. And, and he didn't make it because of the, the airlines and in his introduction, he went through all of the boarding and the unboarding and the broken promises and the delays in the trip and those type of things. And in the end, he didn't make it. And um, an unknown man spoke in his place, and God used that brother mightily. And, and so his point in his sermon was, after grumbling over, uh, over the... Uh, missing the conference, he, he said, I had to say, God is sovereign. I, I can see that now. But Delta was still responsible. And <laughs> I felt the same thing last week. God was sovereign, and he intended you to hear First John, uh, a message on prayer. But I still hold Delta responsible for not being here with you and, uh, and with my family. So since it's been a while... Since we've been in Romans, let me remind you where we're at before we, we jump into this new section in, in Romans chapter 3. The Apostle Paul has a prevailing purpose in writing his letter to the, to the Romans. We're breaking it down bit by bit, but, but you don't want to miss the, or forget the, the whole. And, and his aim is to teach us about the gospel of God's righteousness. And so... For two chapters, Paul has been preparing us for that message. That message is coming in chapter 3 and, and chapter 4. And he's even given us a preview or an overview of that good news in chapter 1 and verses 16 and 17, verses you probably know well, you probably memorized in Sunday school. For I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God unto salvation to everyone who believes uh, unto the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it, the righteousness of God is, is revealed. Paul says his message is potent. It, it contains the saving power of God. The righteousness of God that is granted to sinners, which is received through, through faith alone. And, and he says that's not a new truth. That's, that's found in the Old Testament. It, it wasn't you're saved by law in the Old Testament and, and grace in the New. That, that's his message. And... Before he shows us that message in detail, he, he reveals our need for it over these three chapters that we're walking through. So, like descending into the, the dank dungeon of depravity, holding this flickering gospel torch that he's, he's given us in the introduction, Paul then shows us these three proverbial men locked up in their sinful cells, and he, he brings us up into the door and uh, to the door and and allows us to peek through the bars at, at the, the one who's behind the, behind the door. And he starts with the, the immoral Gentiles who suppress the truth in chapter, chapter 1. 
And then he takes us to the cell of the, the religious or moral man who perverts the truth in chapter 2 and thinks that their religion is, is going, going to save them. And, and finally, where, where he'll bring us to uh, even next week, there's, there's anyone who falls outside of that or in between. They fall into the category of Romans 3, 9 through 20, where, where he shows universally all people deny the truth and, and are under sin. And this morning, we're coming to the end of his condemnation of the religious man in, in chapter 3, verses 1 through 8, that, that Tuck read for us. These are people who are trusting in their morality. They're trusting in their religion, thinking that somehow that's going to allow them to escape the, the judgment of God. We, we said these are people who know right. Uh, they have the right revelation. They have the right worship, the right rituals, the right position. And Paul's just got done saying that none of those things are a covering before the Lord's judgment. We would say being born in a Christian family, or being baptized as a child, or serving in the nursery, or in a ministry, in, in whatever way, that will not affect your outcome at the Lord's judgment seat in, in any way, if, if, if you're outside of Christ. Because God's not a face receiver. He he doesn't judge with partiality. He's not going to look at your sin and then he's going to look at you, look at your face and say, oh, I, oh, I see you, were, you, you attended Timberlake Baptist Church. and uh, So that changes everything. Come on in. He's going to see your sin and then he's going to look to see if your name is written in the Lamb's Book of Life. And if he sees the blood of his son, then he'll pass over your sin and say, enter into the joy of of my kingdom, Jew or Gentile or, or, or anything in between or outside of that. And so after spending an entire chapter pointing out the emptiness of, of religion, Paul addresses some common arguments that come in, in, in light of that. He's condemned the moral man in general and the, the Jewish person in particular, and then that leads to a series of questions about the gospel. And all of these questions are, are, are based on human logic. But they're actually not questions. They're actually arguments or accusations. And, and Paul answers them to, today in, in Romans 3, 1 through 8. In response to his condemnation of the religious person, his opponents apply human reasoning. And they say, well, well Paul, if all of this is true, then are you saying that there's no advantage whatsoever being a Jew? I mean, are there, there's no benefits to morality at, at all? I mean, if the gospel is true and the law cannot save, and there are people who are saved that never had the law, I mean, is there no benefit whatsoever to knowing the Ten Commandments? Uh, I mean, is it better to be raised in a, in a Jewish home rather than outside of one? It seems like it would be to us. I mean, we might say if if baptism or growing up in the church doesn't save you and, and God has no grandchildren, I mean, isn't it still better to be raised in the church than without any knowledge of, of God? I mean, if God condemns the moral person just like the immoral person, then what value is, is knowing right and wrong at all? Just the questions that they're asking. And even further, if this gospel that you preach is all of grace then why not just live like you want? And all of these questions that they ask in these first eight verses are rooted in fallen human logic. 
And I don't know if you've considered this, but the ability to think is one of the things that makes you different from the rest of creation. I mean, unlike animals, we are created in God's image, even though human beings act like animals sometimes. I mean, we have minds capable of reasoning, and God gave us those minds. Or, like your mother likely told you, God gave you a brain, I expect you to use it. Did your mom ever tell you that? But after the fall, your logic is one of the areas that has most gone astray. I mean, human logic, uninformed by Scripture, is something that we're warned about in the Bible. We are warned about using our brains without the Bible, in the Bible. And it's a repeated warning, both in the Old Testament and also in in the New Testament. You can think of Jeremiah 17, 9, right? The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Who can know it? Or, or, or probably a verse that you, could, that you could complete. There is a way that seems right unto man, but the end thereof is the way of death. There's the way that seems right. Seems like I'm going down the right road here based on human logic and human wisdom, but, but the end of that road is a really, really bad place. Or you might go to 1 Corinthians, where Paul provides a contrast between the the wisdom of God and the wisdom of the world. And he says in 1 Corinthians 2.14, But the natural man, talking about human wisdom, human logic, the mind without the Bible, but a natural man does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they're foolishness to him. And he cannot understand them, because they're spiritually appraised. And he goes on to say, but we, we have the mind of Christ. What's the mind of Christ? Well, it's the Word of God. And the Spirit has now illumined you and given you the ability to understand it where you didn't before. Paul will even say later in Romans chapter 8, which is coming, the mind, the human mind, set on the flesh is hostile toward God. It kicks against God. It rejects God. For it does not subject itself to the law of God, for it's not even able to do so. There's another inability passage. God has surely given us minds to use, but Scripture is clear that, that after the fall, it's not a trustworthy source without the light of God's Word. And there's no place that's more evident, that that is more evident than than with the ideas that human beings come up with, the human logic comes up with in response to the gospel. Because there's nothing more contrary to human logic than the gospel. I mean, think about it. All of your sin placed on God, and that's received by grace and a gift. And you say, is that possible? But when it comes to the way of salvation, human logic is particularly untrustworthy. Uh, 1 Corinthians again, uh, chapter 1, verse 18. For the word of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. But to us who are being saved, it's the power of God. And pagans look at grace and they say, that's foolish. I mean, some crucified guy you're following that lived 2,000 years ago? And a religious person looks at grace and stumbles over it and says, there's got to be something I must do. 
You see, religious people, like Paul's dealing with here in chapter 2, they have all the right components. They, they have the law and they have the knowledge of God, but, but using human logic, they put those pieces together and, and what they come up with looks more like a Picasso than, than God's Mona Lisa of, of the gospel. It's abstract, it's crooked. And, and Paul's going to give us four examples of that in our passage today. And as it relates to the gospel, he preaches. Uh, we'll cover... Paul's going to cover these, these four arguments that, that are given uh, against God's condemnation of religious people, which are actually accusations against the gospel of grace. They're four disputes uh, against the righteousness of God, four accusations based on human logic and, and not God's wisdom. And every single one of these, Paul has heard repeatedly over and over on his three missionary journeys. You remember where we're at in the life of Paul. He's already been out three times, and in those three times he's been going to synagogue after synagogue, preaching this same message, and this is the human logic that he's hearing from religious people. And so he forcefully addresses them here. He doesn't leave that, that stone unturned. These are, these are four questions. And the first one is in verse 1 and, and, and 2. What advantage then, or then what advantage has the Jew, or what benefit is of circumcision? And Paul says, great in every respect. There's his answer. First of all, here's the second question. What then? If some do not believe, their unbelief will not nullify the faithfulness of God, will it? Here's Paul's answer. Verse 4, may it never be. Here's the third question. In response to the second one, uh, Paul's answer. But if our unrighteousness demonstrates the righteousness of God, what shall we say? That... God who inflicts wrath is not unrighteous, is he? Paul's answer in verse 6, may it never be. Verse 7, here's the fourth and final question. But if through my lie the truth of God abounded to his glory, then why am I also being judged a sinner? And let us do evil that good may come. And Paul's answer is their condemnation is just. There's, there's one benefit of true religion that he gives here, and then three more arguments that follow, all from human logic. Verses 1 through 8 is actually a preview of what Paul's going to blow out in detail in chapters 9 through 11 and, and also chapter 6. And the four accusations are, Paul, if what you say are, is true, then Jews don't have a special position. If God judges the Jews just like Gentiles, then they don't have a special position. Uh, number two, God is unrighteous if not all Jews are saved. If, if it's true, like what you just got done saying, that not all Jews are Jews... Uh, a Jew is only one who has the spirit apply circumcision of the heart, then, then God's unfaithful. And number three, God should not judge me if he gets glory out of my sin. And then number four, a gospel by grace alone actually encourages people to sin, Paul. I mean, you, you can't just say the law doesn't matter at all. I mean, I understand written on the heart, but I mean, we've got to have some boundaries here or, or grace is just going to let people run in whatever direction they, they want to run. If you boil it down, I think there are four common arguments that religious people make to excuse away God's judgment. First of all, they say God is inconsistent. Second, God is unfaithful. Third, God is unjust. And fourth, God is irresponsible with His grace. And the point to every single one of those is, therefore, God should not judge me. It's the reason for these arguments. Let's look at the first one. 
you'll get these one at a time and expand it a little bit. The first common argument that religious people make is God is inconsistent in his requirements. Uh, so he can't judge me. They find an inconsistency somewhere in the Bible between Old and New Testament, in this case Paul's message, and, and they conclude, therefore, I don't have to, to listen. And you have to go back to the end of chapter 2 to get the context here. So look back at verse 28, and we'll get a running start at this. Verse 28. Paul says, For he is not a Jew who is one outwardly, nor is circumcision that which is outward in the flesh, but he is a Jew who is one inwardly, and circumcision is that which is of the heart, by the Spirit, not by the letter. And his praise is not from men, but from God. And and that's what they're responding to in, in verse 1 of chapter 3. And so they say to Paul, then what advantage has the Jew? Or what is the benefit of circumcision? I mean, that's their question. I mean, if moral Jews are condemned alongside immoral Gentiles, then what's the Old Testament all about? I mean, why as I have this really large part of my Bible over here and this smaller part in the New Testament, because Paul's been saying as Jews, you're also falling under God's judgment because you have the law and you're not keeping it. And so rather than deal with their sin, they're, they're looking for a flaw in Paul's message, and they think they found it. And so this first accusation is, I don't have to listen to your message because it seems inconsistent. And again, all of these are arguments that Paul has heard over and over and over in the synagogue. He goes to the, to, the, to the Jews first. And then he shakes the dust off his feet and goes elsewhere. And he's preached this message on those three missionary journeys. And they're saying, if what, you're, if what you're telling us is true, Paul, then God's contradicted himself. Because he commanded us to keep the law. He commanded us to circumcise our, our children. I mean, it's like a bait and switch. Or, or worse, the Lord's pulled a fast one on us if, if we buy what you're saying. I mean, God told us in the Old Testament, we're special. We're Jewish people. And that these religious things matter. And now you're coming along saying that they don't. It's like a, the deflection that people will give sometime when, whenever they, sometimes whenever they say... You know, I mean, what's that, all that Old Testament stuff about, about not eating lobster and you can't weave linen and wool together? And now you can eat bacon and dress the way, the way that you want. I mean, that's just inconsistent. I mean, so I really don't have to listen to the Bible at all. That, that's their argument, right? All the while, they're neglecting the p- very plain parts of the Bible, like, thou shalt not lie, thou shalt not steal, and thou shalt have no other gods before me. And there's nothing inconsistent and hard to understand about that, is there? It's a diversionary tactic, and that's what these religious people are, are, are using here. Instead of understanding the context, they, they use what seems inconsistent. They find something in Paul's argument that seems inconsistent to explain the, the Bible away. And Paul has been arguing that an unbelieving Gentile and an unbelieving Jew will face the same judgment. He's also been arguing a believing Gentile and a believing Jew is no different salvifically. And so the question comes. If we're condemned with the rest of the world, then what good is it to be a Jew? I mean, what advantage is there to being part of Israel? I mean, we might say it this way, if works don't save, is there any value to coming to church? 
any value in morality at all? And when you think about it, that question almost seems legitimate if you use human logic. I mean, they are God's chosen people, right? There is an Old Testament in your Bible. There are Ten Commandments, and they're good to follow whether you know Jesus or not. And the Jewish people have a whole Old Testament to prove God's faithfulness to them. And if they're condemned just like immoral people, what about all those promises? Now, Paul's going to answer that question in detail. He's going to take three chapters to do that. And chapter 6, he's going to answer the question... Um, you know, if grace is, is grace, do I continue in sin that grace may abound? But he just provides an executive summary here, and he shows the error behind the question. And Paul says, that's not what I'm saying at all. Look at verse 2. Here's his answer to that question. What, what advantage has the Jew, or what is the benefit of circumcision? Paul says, great in every respect. First of all, they've been entrusted with the oracles of God. And so... So after an entire chapter saying there's no difference, there's, there's no difference in God's judgment, there's no difference in the way of salvation between Jew and Gentile, you expect Paul to say there's no difference between Jew or, or Greek. But that's not what he says. Paul says, yes, there's a benefit. But that benefit is unique to being a Jew. And the one benefit is that they were entrusted with the Word of God. Here is the one benefit of religion. It's because religion typically contains the words of truth or right and wrong. It's usually buried under rituals and tapestries and incense, but it's there. I mean, even today, if you go into an apostate church for a funeral or, or a wedding, one that's long left its denominational roots... Uh, it doesn't even preach the gospel anymore. Typically, they're going to read from something historical, the Book of Common Prayer or, or something like that, some historical book, and, and in that historical book, you're going to find the words of God or the, or the gospel. Now, they don't care what that says. They probably don't even under, understand it, but, but it's there. And it's a witness of what once was. And if you look at the Jewish people, it's the same. You can see an echo of what God intended there. That's not an endorsement to, to stay in a church like that. You, you should actually run from it. But it's an example of what Paul says here. To the Jews who rejected their own Messiah, Paul says you will be judged, but you're not without special benefit because you received the promises and the prophecies about Him, even though you rejected them. I mean, that's your benefit. Even stronger, he says this truth has been committed to your trust. Now look at what he says here in verse 2. Yeah, there, there's something special about the Jewish people. First, in every way, they were entrusted with the oracles of God. First of all, or chiefly, you could take that one of two ways. It, it's like saying, first in a list that he never finishes. Paul says, let me tell you how special... Number one, and then he gets carried away and never comes back to, to number two. Or, I think probably more likely, like your King James says, chiefly or primarily. What makes you special? What's the benefit? You have been given the oracles of God. Paul will actually continue the list in chapter 9, verses 4 and 5. We'll see it when we get there. He lists a number of Jewish benefits. 
they have the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship, the, the promises, the patriarchs. Christ is a Jew. Messiah is a Jewish Messiah. That's quite a list. But here he just simply notes where all those things come from. How do we know any of those things? They, they all come from the fact that, that God gave the Jewish people his word. They had the Old Testament, the Hebrew Scriptures, long before we had the New Testament revelation. And all of those benefits come from receiving God's words or His oracles. Oracles is meaning divine utterances. And the word, those divine utterances were entrusted to them. That word is, is significant. It means it was committed to their keeping. God didn't give the Bible to any other nation or any other people on the planet. He gave it to the, to, the, to the children of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob and said, here's my law, here's my word, keep this in your trust. Live by it, share it with other people. And that's a pretty significant thing, isn't it? They received the word of God, which was the Old Testament as a whole. Listen to a couple of verses, Deuteronomy 4-7, talking about this special privilege that they have. For what great nation is there that has a God so near to it as is the Lord our God when, whenever we call on Him? Or what great nation is there that, that has statutes and judgments as righteous as this whole law which I am setting before you today? Psalm 147 is even more explicit. He declares His words to Jacob, His statutes and His ordinances to Israel. He has not dealt thus with any nation. As for His ordinances, they have not known them. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord indeed, if you're a Jewish person. What a blessing it was to, to be born a physical Jew, or we would say what a blessing it is to be raised in a Christian home, or what a blessing it is to, to be brought up in Lynchburg, Virginia, in America, where you have access to the Word of God. It doesn't mean that you're going to heaven, you're first in line just because of where you're born, uh, versus somebody who is, you know, in India, but you are blessed to have a copy of, of God's Word. But they didn't use that privilege, did they? And that's the argument that Paul's been making. If you have the privilege and the word, the law, and you don't use it, just having it's not going to get you into heaven. God's entrusting His oracles to Israel requires a believing response. And he says you were unfaithful. And those oracles ought to have led you to see your sinfulness before God and therefore embrace the Messiah that I'm preaching, the gospel that I'm proclaiming. But that's not, the, that's not what the Jews were doing. They were trusting in their Jewishness for their salvation, not Jesus. And Paul says, that'll damn you. And I'm being faithful to tell you that, he says. And all of the other benefits that were promised flow out of that truth. God spoke to them. God gave them His words. And that response should have generated a recognition of their need and humble obedience, not arguments, not resistance. And when you hear God speak, it should change you. It should humble you that you get to hear the voice of God, that you have God's voice on written page in your lap right now. It should show you your need of Him. It shouldn't make you proud. 
But having the Bible often makes religious people proud. They use it in order to justify themselves and against others rather than submitting to it. What do you do with the privilege of the Bible? As you sit here this morning hearing it preached, are are you humble to have it? Does it drive you to Christ? Or do you explain it away whenever it condemns you? Oh, Paul says there's a great benefit of of having the the truth. And and so the religious man considers what Paul says and says, Good answer, Paul. Uh, But I'm not done with you. I, I have some additional questions. And so he probes a little further. It brings us to our second question here. And the second common argument religious people make is, If God does not save all religious people, then then he's unfaithful. He's unfaithful to his promises. Look at their argument here in verse 3. What then? If some did not believe, their unbelief will not nullify the faithfulness of God, will it? I mean, that's the question. Here's Paul's answer in verse 4. May it never be. Rather, let God be found true, even though every man, would be found a liar. And he quotes Psalm 51 in response or as as evidence. As it is written, that you may be justified in your words and prevail when you're judged. The second uh, accusation is an attack on God's character. The first one was an attack on God's word. This one is an attack on God's character. And the argument goes something like this. So, So, okay. So you agree that we're God's chosen people. I must have misunderstood you there in verses 28 and 29. And if God promises we're his people and and not all of us believe according to what you're saying there, Paul, then then how's God true to his promises? This is in response to Paul saying at the end of chapter 2 that not all Jews will be saved, not all physical Jews. The Jew that is saved is one who has had a transformation of the heart, And that transformation is dependent upon the Spirit. The Spirit to circumcise the heart, not something that they do physically, outwardly. And and so here's their argument. If God promised to save Israel, and salvation requires that that work of the Spirit, like you say, which I can't secure by the law or my works, then, then God has failed to fulfill His promise. I mean, if God chose them as His people, then how come not all of the Jews believe. And if some don't believe, doesn't that somehow look bad on God or negate His promise? Is He not unfaithful? I mean, He promised. And not all of them are coming to embrace the Messiah. We say it's something like this. If salvation is offered to all people and not everyone believes, then is God unfair? I mean, if he knows not all people will be saved, is God unjust somehow by offering salvation to all people? Or we say say things like this. I mean, if God knew, and of course he did, that if he put that tree in the middle of the Garden of Eden, that Adam and Eve were going to disobey and eat and plunge the entire human race into, into peril and that sinners are then going to be damned because of that, was God unjust by putting it there to begin with? He knew what was going to happen. Is He unfaithful? I mean, if it's all by grace and there's nothing I can do to earn it or gain it, then then why offer it? 
as if there is something that, that, I, that I can do. You might have had that question before as you, you're working through the passages in the New Testament. I mean, you read, God say, whosoever will, let him come. And then you read Jesus talking to Nicodemus in John chapter 3 that says the Spirit blows wherever he wills. And you can't control the Spirit. That's the point. We're coming to me. And then Ephesians 2, which says you're dead in your trespasses and sins, or what Paul's getting ready to say in verse 9 of Romans 3. There's none that understands. There's none that seeks after God, Jew or Gentile. And you hear that and your human logic thinks, I mean, how can both of those things be true? I mean, how can he offer salvation to all and it be a genuine offer if, if no one comes apart from the, the work of the Spirit? And that's their argument from a Jewish standpoint. I mean, if God chose the Jewish people, they're his elect people, his elect nation out of all the world. He, he, he passed over all of the Gentiles and, and chose Israel. And it's clear that not all of those natural Jews are going to be saved. Then, then was that really a promise? Is that... Is God flubbing his covenant here? Is he somehow going back on what he said? It's accusing God of being unfaithful, even though they refuse to be faithful themselves to the covenant that God gave them. It's like saying if we fail to reach salvation as Jews, as you insist, then that implies God is powerless and he's unfaithful. And that's what some people say. They say things like, well, if he's God and good, then, then why would he send anybody to hell? I mean, and if he does, doesn't that make him look mean? I mean, if he's good, then shouldn't he be obligated to save everyone, no matter how they live? And if he doesn't, then he's not good. I mean, that, that, that's human logic. And Paul says, but in reality, the point is not God. The point is the sinner. I mean, if God saved no one he would still be just. Look at what he says in verse 4. He says, is their argument true? May it never be. Rather, let God be found true, even though every man be found a, a, a liar. If everybody on the planet is a liar, and they are, then God would remain faithful. He would remain just. Meganoita in the Greek, or in the King James, God forbid. It's the strongest way that you can say this. Now, the answer to their argument is God entrusted his promises to Israel, but some did not return that trust. God was faithful, and Israel was faithless. But let God be found true, even though every man is a liar, Jew or Gentile. And here's where you can see the attack on God's character, and it's offensive to Paul. It ought to be offensive to you. To those who say God is unrighteous or unjust for not saving someone, Paul says God would be faithful to who he is if he saved no one because all are sinners. See, where we get that out of order is we start with, with, with God rather than, rather than the sinner. We start evaluating God rather than evaluating ourselves. And so he uses Psalms 51 to, Psalm 51 to prove his argument. Here, look at what he says here. As it is written, he's going to confirm what he says by something that's written in the Old Testament. And here's what's written. That you may be justified in your words and prevail when you're judged. Now what is that? It's a quote of Psalm 51, verse 4. 
And you might, know not, you might not know verse 4, but you should know Psalm 51. It's a penitential psalm. It's David's confession of his sin uh, with Bathsheba. And the context is important. Because it's David professing, God, against you and you alone have I sinned, and you are righteous in your judgment of me. And I'm confessing that. If you don't forgive me, you are righteous, is what he's saying. I don't deserve it. And David says God would be absolutely just and right to wipe him out because of his sin. You're righteous to judge me. And consider what, so who's making those statements. David is saying that, even though he's a Jew. David is the guy that God says he's a man after his own heart. David is not just a Jew. He's God's chosen king, the one that promised, the one that God promised an everlasting throne. And David says, God is not unrighteous in judging my sin. So how could God be unrighteous in judging you? And if he shows mercy to someone else, how's he wrong in that? I mean, the whole point of mercy and grace is it's not earned, it's not deserved. What you and I should be thinking that we should get from God is hell, period, nothing else. And if he shows mercy beyond that, then praise his holy name. It's to the praise of the glory of his grace. But you shouldn't accuse him in any way. God is no less faithful when he judges than when he fulfills his promise to save, which is what Paul's argument is here. So if every man in the world becomes a liar, God's word still remains true. In fact, God judging wicked Jews is an evidence that he's faithful to his promises because the covenant that they're appealing to, had both blessings and curses. If you do this, God will bless you. If you do this, God will curse you. And that judgment was part of the covenant. Now, is God done with the Jewish people as a whole? No, He's not. He'll go into that detail in chapters 9 through 11. He'll say that, that in, He's broken off some of the, some of the, the original branches and he's grafted us, wild olive branches, Gentiles into the root of Abraham. And he's going to take some of those same branches that he's broken off and he's going to, he's going to put them back in at, at, at some point. But every Jewish person that dies outside of Jesus Christ today goes to hell, just like every Gentile that dies outside of Jesus Christ does the same because of their sin. And the argument that they make is God must keep his promise whether the Jew is a sinner or a righteous man because he's a Jew. Because God promised the Jews they were his people. And Paul says that's dangerous, worldly, human logic. And I wish it stopped there, but it gets even worse. Here's the third common argument that religious people make against God. And it's that he is unjust in his judgment, if, if he gets any glory out of judging or out of, out of my sin. Now remember, this is, these are common arguments that Paul has been hearing in light of his gospel. It's responses. And so he's answering them. And they're arguments based on human logic, and they're from Jewish people, religious people. And here's the question in verse 5. They all build on each other. I'll, I'll tie it together for you in a minute. Here's the question. Verse 5. But if our unrighteousness 
demonstrates the, the righteousness of God, what shall we say? The God who inflicts wrath is not unrighteous, is he? Implying he is. And Paul says, I'm speaking in human terms. It's like Paul can't even let those blasphemous words out of his mouth without saying, now wait a minute, this is human logic. It's not mine, it's not God's. It's human wisdom. And look at his answer in verse 6. May it never be. For otherwise, if your logic is correct, how would God judge the world? How would he judge the Gentiles? So, So the argument goes like this. So you're saying part of God's character, Paul, is that he judges sin. He judges my sin. And he must judge sin because he's God. And judging sin proves that he is God. It, it, it makes him look, look like who he is. It makes him look just. It makes him faithful. But if God's righteousness appears then because of my sin, then, then can God blame me for it? I mean, do you follow the human logic that they're... It's just laced all through this. Paul says God is impartial in judgment. He treats everyone the same. And so they say, what about God making the Jews his people? And Paul says in verse 2, Israel has a special place. They've received the word of God, but that doesn't protect you from judgment if you break it. So they say in verse 3, but God made a covenant with us, and and he must be faithful to it. And and Paul answers in verse 4, yes, he did, but... But the evidence that he's faithful to that covenant is he also promised judgment if you reject it, and that judgment proves he's righteous. And so here they say in verse 5, well, if that proves he's righteous, then then how is it fair for God to judge me if my sin brings him glory? And people use that twisted, twisted logic today. If God gets some glory even in our judgment, then how can he condemn us? It's... It's the people who argue if good comes out of bad, then, then the bad's justified, right? I mean, the end justifies the means. Um, that makes the bad okay. And it means God should approve of the bad. And in the end, which is God's glory that's good, if it's my sin that is the means by which God gets that glory, then then why is it counted wrong? Or as Kent Hughes said, if being bad makes God look good, then how can God judge me if I make him look good in my sin? It's a common argument that a religious person makes. It's the argument that from somebody who's been in the system for a while, and they know how to presume upon the grace of God. And here's what it sounds like. It, it may be wrong, but God will forgive me um, because He's sovereign. He's sovereign even over my sin. And, and maybe He'll even work something good out of it. That's what it sounds like. And Paul says in response to that in verse 6, May it never be. For otherwise, how will God judge the world? He uses the second God forbid here in response to this blasphemous question. I mean, Paul's speaking to religious Jews who were claiming to be God's special people and others are not. These religious people clearly believe that God's going to judge somebody else. And even though God's going to get glory out of judging them, He's going to he's saying, you know, but, but He won't. shouldn't judge me because He gets glory out of my sin. So how can God do that if, Paul says, if, if your reasoning is correct? If God can't judge the sinner because sin makes God look more glorious, then, 
then how can you deal with any sinner, not just Jewish ones? And if that scrambles your brain to try to follow that logic, you're not crazy, okay? You're a believer, and you have the mind of Christ. You, you have the Bible that, that has renewed your, your mind. And human logic is, is some of the, the most twisted there is. So don't try to make sense out of sin. Sin is illogical. Why did he do that? Why did... Why did, why did she go down that path? You won't always find a logical answer. You, you want a you current example? The culture says, I'm exalting womanhood by blurring the gender lines where no one can even answer the question, what is a woman? Does that make sense? It's illogical. Or the person who says, I went to the gentleman's club, but I know that may be wrong, but, but maybe God can use my, my tips to help that young lady who, who looks like she's really struggling. Twisted human logic. I'm dating this unsaved guy, and I know the Bible says that you're not supposed to do that, but, but maybe I can win him to Christ. Twisted human logic. You could probably find some to, to put in there as well. And the sinner says, God must have wanted me to sin. So he could look more glorious in light of it. Twisted human logic. And they're unfazed by, by Paul's answers here. They're, they're, just, they're going for the juggler. He has them on the ropes, and so they're, they're just fighting with all they have. Here's the, the fourth one. In verse 7, they, they, they take this idea in verses 5 and 6, and they, they go a little further with it. Here's the final and fourth common argument religious people make. And it's God's irresponsible with His grace. If it's all grace, then He's irresponsible. Look at you at verse 7 and 8. Here's the question. But if through my lie, remember He said, if every man's a liar, then God's still faithful. But if through my lie, the truth of God abounded to His glory, why am I also still being judged as a sinner? That, that sounds a lot like their argument in verse 6, but watch them take it further. And why not say... Paul says, as we are slanderously reported, as some claim that we say, this is an accusation that people are making against Paul and his gospel, and here's taking it the step further, let us do evil, that good may come. And Paul's answer is their condemnation is just. Now, he doesn't even bother to give an explanation with that one. He just condemns them. And this argument goes with the previous one. There's a this is the logical argument from verse 6, pressed to its final conclusion. I mean, if you take human logic all the way to the end, it concludes that you should do evil that good may come. Which is why you have a world saying things that are evil are good and things that are good are evil. And, and they say, Paul, if your gospel of grace is true, doesn't that encourage sin? Doesn't that incentivize sin if God just forgives it? I mean, if the way of salvation is simply He gives mercy to sinners in Christ and it's by faith alone and not the law, isn't that there an incentive there just to live however you want? I mean, shouldn't we, we have some rules, some days, some laws, some ceremonies to kind of fence in the human heart? Uh, there are Christian churches that, that do that. They go beyond the text thinking that somehow they're, they're doing good, but they're binding the conscience and violating Scripture. And Paul's response to them is just a pronouncement of judgment. 
you've probably heard it this way. Probably heard someone say, if you believe in eternal security, then doesn't that mean that you can just pray and ask Jesus into your heart and then live however you want? Heard somebody make that argument? And Paul would say to that person, you're condemned. Your, your logic is, is ridiculous. Because if you've been laid hold of by Christ, truly, then you desire to live for Him, not sin, which is, Paul will use a whole chapter, chapter 6, to blow that argument out. And if you sin indiscriminately while claiming that you've laid hold of Christ, you've never laid hold of Him. His Spirit doesn't reside within you because Christians don't act like that. This is a more common argument than, than you might think, even more common than, than that. It's not just a Jewish argument. It's very, relevant for, uh, very prevalent today. People make this argument all the time with Romans 8, 28, don't they? Well, God works all things together for good. So when someone sins horribly and God works something good even out of their sin, they say, well, it must have been what God desired. These are religious people that baptize their, their sin and the good outcome that God mercifully sometimes brings. And in doing so, they try to make it seem like what they did wasn't that, that bad. It's just the person that when you're in counseling or you're dealing with and they're exposed in sin, they appeal to David's sin with Bathsheba first and say, well, Christians sin... They're not the person that, that, that's so broken over their sin. You have to take them to the fact and say, look, here's, here's what God showed, did when he showed mercy to David. They run to David first rather than being brought there in tears. And Paul says that argument that's being made here is nonsense. Just because God's work, God works something good out of your sin doesn't excuse it or mean that consequences won't, won't, won't come for it. It means that God is merciful and gracious and and he can make a silk purse out of a sow's ear, but your sin was still piggly, and you're still very dirty because of it. You see what they're doing? They're presuming upon the grace of God, and in doing so, attacking the grace of God. They're, they're trying to pull what God does in His grace and use it as a covering over their sin and say, since God ordained it, it excuses me. And just because God ordained the fall doesn't mean He's responsible for it. I mean, he didn't make Adam and Eve eat from the tree in disobedience. And, but he was gracious and merciful not, not to leave mankind in his sin and to bring about Christ. And, and the Bible does say that God will even be glorified to a greater degree because of the, of the fall. But that doesn't make him culpable for it. He tempts no man with evil. Or as we said when we, were start, as we, said when we started, God indeed is sovereign. But Delta is responsible. And God indeed is sovereign even when you sin. But you are still responsible. And the Jews had convinced themselves that works were necessary and they heard Paul's message of grace alone and faith alone and said, if that's true, then, then you can just live however you want and still go to heaven. And, and here's Paul's answer to that at the end of verse 8. The person who thinks that and says that, their condemnation is just. And if you think like that, you're condemned by God, is what he's saying. Condemnation is on the person who too quickly says, well, God will use that somehow before they repent and mourn over their sinfulness. 
To do that is presuming upon the providence of God, and that's what religious people do. They, they hear sermons over and over about God's forgiveness and grace, and that grace is greater than all of their sin, and when they sin, they say, oh, well, God must work it for good somehow. And Paul says, if you're saying that, your condemnation is just, and you may not know God at all. It's sinful logic. It's crazy logic. And without the Bible, that's all we would have, which is why there's so much mess in church and in the world, because there's a, there's a lot of places that gather without the Bible, and the world's without it. But thankfully, to us has been entrusted the oracles of God, right? Thankfully, we have a copy of God's Word, the Old Testament and the New. And in it is found the wisdom of God in the gospel of Jesus Christ, where where do you turn in a world that's full of this kind of logic, a a world that accuses God in instead of seeing their own sin, in a world full of blame-shifting and justifying, you, you turn to the one place that can make everything right side up. You turn to the one who says, for whoever wishes to save his life will lose it, but, but whoever loses his life for my sake, he is the one who will save it. And the one who says, you come to the one who says, come to me. And I'll lift your sin burden. You come to Jesus Christ, who can make the vilest sinner clean. And if he's made you clean, there is not an ounce of of desire in you to want to trample underfoot his grace, is there? You want to live your life every single day in a way that's pleasing to him. And when you do sin, yes, you have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous, but it grieves you to no end that that advocate had to be called on rather than you being faithful. Amen? Let's pray. Oh, Father, I do thank you for your word. And I pray, even though we hear the Bible every Sunday, we believe it, we trust it, it's our authority. Faulty human logic is, is resident all around us. And if our hearts are left alone, it'll come from within. And so I pray, Father, that, that you would you'd protect us from that. And the answer to, to the wisdom of the world is, is the wisdom of God, is it, it, grace. It's, it's Christ alone, faith alone. It's coming to Him who might wash away all of your sins, making Him Lord, and then renewing our mind, walking in what? He instructs, having a healthy suspect, Lord, of of our own thinking, our own desires, and and laying hold firmly the truth in Scripture. Help us to do that. If anyone's here this morning, Lord, and has fallen into sin or doesn't know Jesus Christ, I pray today that they would just turn from all of that logic and say, I don't, I don't understand how you can save me, Lord, but you say that you will if I come to Jesus, and so I come. And then I pray you give them the mind of Christ. And I ask all this and give you praise in Jesus' name. Amen.